The politics of abortion occupy a frequent spot on the nightly news. But just what is the state of the pro-life movement, both in the United States and around the globe? Today, we'll talk to 40 Days for Life founder David B. Wright about effective strategies for pro-life activism, as well as the greatest challenges and opportunities facing the pro-life movement in an increasingly post-Christian society. I'm Dr. Bob Rice, professor of catechetics at Franciscan University in Steubenville, Ohio, and you're watching Franciscan University Presents. Stay with us. Welcome to Franciscan University Presents. I'm your host, Dr. Bob Rice, a professor of catechetics here at Franciscan University of Steubenville. And today we're talking about pro-life activism. I'm joined by our regular panelists, Dr. Regis Martin, professor of systematic theology here at Franciscan University, and Dr. Scott Hahn, the Father Michael Scanlon, professor of biblical theology and the new evangelization here at Franciscan. We're pleased to welcome our special guest, David B. Wright. Uh, David B. Wright is the founder of 40 Days for Life, which is a network of 750,000 Christians in over 700 cities across 49 nations, whose prayers and efforts to date have saved 14,643 children's lives uh, during his time. Before that, he was the executive director of the American Life League and national director of Stopped Planned Parenthood. He has spoken on numerous television and radio media outlets, including Fox News, ABC, NBC, CBS, and now, of course, EWTN. And he is a recent convert to the Catholic faith. So welcome to Franciscan. Welcome to Catholicism. It's really a joy to have you here today. Well, it's, it's amazing to be here. Thank you for having me, and thank you for allowing me to be a part of the show and being a part of the amazing Franciscan University family, a place that has had such an impact on me and my faith journey and so many other people around the world. So it's a tremendous honor to be here. Oh, praise God. That's wonderful. So the, the topic that we're doing is this idea of pro-life activism. And yes. activism uh, is a bit of a charged word and has a lot of different <laughs> connotations. Uh, in terms of your role through 40 Days of Life and the other ministries you've been involved with, mm -hmm. how would you define that? You know, activism, as you say, a lot of times comes with thoughts of massive street protests or uh, tensions or destruction or, or just people rabble-rousing. And I think the pro-life movement, there's a big difference. And one of the differences is the people who are participating in activism are speaking up for someone else. Mm -hmm. So instead of going to the streets to demand their own rights, they're going to the streets, they're going to the sidewalks, they're involved in activities and efforts calling upon protection of the rights of others, others who are invisible, so innocent children in the womb and their mothers and fathers and families. Uh, in Scripture, we're told to speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. So that's a key component of what pro-life activism is and what makes it unique. Another piece of pro-life activism is because this is an outreach of our faith and the way we live our lives and view other people as God made them, it's nonviolent, it's peaceful, and it's constructive. Yes, it sometimes creates a social tension that necessitates change, but it is done in a constructive way that really recognizes the dignity not only of the preborn child and the mother, but even of those who are what the world would view as opponents, those who work in the abortion industry, those who advocate for abortion. So those are a few things that I think make pro-life activism distinct from other forms of activism. You know, the, the sense that I get is that it's uh, so quiet. 
uh, mm. so unobtrusive as to be almost invisible. Uh, and wouldn't it, wouldn't it be true to say that in the public consciousness, it doesn't exist? It's a non-issue. Nobody really thinks about abortion, uh, much less agitation against it. I mean, the effort, yeah. for example, to enact legislation, the supreme reform that we have been pining for, for the last couple of generations, a constitutional amendment to ensure legal protection for children in the born, children in, in the womb. Nobody, nobody's talking about that anymore. So, I mean, how do you account for that anomaly? Well, I, I think as, as people of faith, we sometimes want to be very kind and charitable. And it is important that we approach our activism in a very Christ-like way, which is compassionate, which is recognizing the dignity of everybody involved. But we do at times need to, in a way, agitate the culture to demand change. Mm -hmm. Change that supports our faith, change that supports the fundamental right to life, which was the first right that was given to us as Americans by our founding fathers, not really given to us by them, but really from our Creator. And so when we gather in Washington, D.C., by the hundreds of thousands at the March for Life, you would think that would be an agitation. It would awaken the conscience of the nation. But the mainstream secular media, of course, chooses to yeah. black that out as much as they can. Yeah. And it's because of EWTN and other outlets that we're able to see that. But that's why I think it's so important for us to bring the activism to our communities because that's where children are at risk of death. That's where women are at risk in a vulnerable moment of being exploited by the abortion industry. That's why we need to bring this to the forefront to call upon our brothers and sisters in Christ to say, we have an obligation, a gospel obligation, to be a voice for the voiceless and to rescue those. So, so you're, you're not really troubled by the fact that uh, in the public sphere, uh, so far as secular America is concerned, uh, your effort has not made much of a splash. Nobody notices. You don't mind that because in the other America, you're making a difference. Well, I, I would say we do have to engage those who have different views. And you see public sentiment has shifted quite a bit in recent years as more pro-life legislation is being passed, as particularly the young generation is far more pro-life than their parents. So we are seeing engagement with those who have differing views. And I think it's important for us to have those conversations, but to do it in a compassionate, Christ-like way. I would say in some respects, it's more well-known now. Uh, before, you know, in the 80s, I remember Jack Wilkie, the Handbook on Abortion, yes. and educational efforts. And I was a part of that, receiving it first and then with Kimberly, giving it to others. In, in the 90s, it was activism, and it was in your face, and I was a part of that as well, you know. But it was dismantling machines, invading abortuaries, getting arrested, hauled off, and, you know, that sort of civil disobedience and so on. Yeah. Uh, now, I think that there is a kind of leavening so that through um, schools, but also through political action, but especially through 40 Days for Life, mm -hmm. through prayer, mm -hmm. and through the, the networking of people who are educated, who have experience in activism, which I think still has its place for sure, Absolutely. but a, a kind of maturing of the movement. It wouldn't surprise me when we get to heaven, just like I go to Cooperstown to see all of the baseball stars for a century, I think we're gonna be astonished at the number, the hundreds, the thousands, the tens of thousands of saints who really are kind of like heavenly hall of famers for all of their pro-life efforts over these decades of, of slaughter. Mm -hmm. And just consider the, uh, the other witness uh, on the other side of, of history, all of those uh, babies who have been slaughtered. Mm -hmm. I mean, they're alive uh, in the mind and heart of God, and they will rise up and testify to those who, who championed uh, their right to life. Absolutely. David, Absolutely. tell me a little bit about this, uh, this 
I wouldn't maybe say it's a unique strategy, but I, I certainly remember, you know, Scott, you know, in the 90s, it was about getting arrested. It was about just breaking into clinics and having sit-ins and, and doing those things. And certainly in the 90s, that was really seen as this is how you do it. Uh, I first got uh, introduced to you and to the ministry through Abby Johnson's Unplanned. What a mm -hmm. wonderful book. Uh, and you actually have an approach in 40 Days of Life, I would say is more meek, uh, prayer, fasting. Uh, you know, you, you seem to push away from holding up pictures of, you know, you know babies in garbage cans and, and really a condemnation of others but focusing uh, more on the beauty of life and the power of prayer. Can you just share a little bit of your story on how you came to that and how that grew and, and how you've seen that uh, bless not just the United States, but the world in terms of the ministry? Yeah, absolutely. And you know, I got involved in pro-life efforts when Planned Parenthood opened an abortion facility in the town where I used to live, the town of College Station, Texas. Mm. And so I, like everyone, tried everything, didn't know what to do, didn't know what would work. And many of those things were largely unsuccessful. And we tracked the abortion numbers and they kept going up. And that was ultimately for us a measure of, we could feel self-righteous about the things we're doing, but ultimately, is it helping to save lives? Is it changing hearts and minds? Is it making a difference? Mm. And progressively we realized the things we've been trying haven't been working. And so out of really that frustration and, and really a sense of utter desperation, we did what we should have done years earlier is we spent an hour and just said, we need to pray and seek God's will on this. What does he want? Mm. And so we sat around a wooden table in our little office there, the pro-life group in that town, and we just said, God, what do you want us to do? And that was when he gave us the peace about the sense of, we need to do something for 40 days because that's a very spiritually significant time frame. Throughout the Bible, we see God changing the world many times through 40 day periods or changing his people. And so we said, well, what do we do? And the first thing we felt we had to do, realizing that we couldn't end this in our community by ourselves. With man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. So we said, we have to start with prayer and also fasting because scripture tells us that some demons can only be driven out through prayer and fasting. So we said, we've got to include that. The second thing that we felt we had to do was a constant peaceful prayer vigil outside of the abortion center to bear witness to the injustice that was happening inside to awaken the conscience of the community, those who believed like us and those who didn't, but also to be a sign of hope and help to those who are at risk of going in and to truly be looking at that mother and trying to reach her and loving her because you can't reach the child if you don't reach the mother. Mm -hmm. And then the third and final thing, another way we engaged the community is we actually had a team of college students that went door to door to every household in our community, inviting people to pray and fast and come participate in a peaceful vigil. And they were knocking on the doors of Planned Parenthood workers and of the oh. editor of the newspaper and of the mayor of the city. But they went to every household because we wanted to awaken the conscience of the community to say, Something bad is happening and we have an obligation to do something about it. So from that birth, over a thousand people participated in that vigil and in those prayers mm -hmm. and we saw abortions go down by 28%. So and what year that was, was what led, this was in, golly, you would ask me that on the spot. I believe that was in <laughs> 2001, we did okay. the first 40 Days for Life campaign. Wow. And so we thought it was over. We thought, whew, we did that. We're never gonna do it again, it was exhausting. But one by one, other cities began to reach out to us and say, can you help us do what you did? And so we began to help other communities and they saw similar results. And finally we said, God's onto something here. And what if we actually joined him in this great thing he's doing? And so that was when we set up a national and eventually international organizing group to help facilitate these campaigns. And so it was through 
our own frustration. It was through an hour of prayer and humbling ourselves before God saying we don't have the answer that he gave us clarity of something we were supposed to do and that now many others have done around the world and has changed well, thousands what, of what lives. Well, what ultimately happened uh, in your town, I mean, as a result of these well, catalyzing... During that first campaign, those thousand people, they saw abortions reduced by 28%, right. but then they continued to hold those campaigns and eventually that abortion center went out of business, exactly. but not before its director, Abby Johnson, had her change of heart My and not only left the abortion industry, yeah. but came to the pro-life side, now also a Catholic Christian, yeah. and to see how her influence has now helped hundreds of other workers leave the abortion industry and her story has reached millions. Well, that that See, is I think really impressive. So what you want to do is replicate that same experience in every city, every town in America. Well, God has been replicating it through people who've raised their hand and said, we want to do this where we live. Yeah. See, I think 40 Days for Life represents, as I said a few minutes ago, the maturing uh, of this whole movement because there's a place for political action, you know, and it goes back to Henry Hyde and the amendment and all of that. Education, technology, the silent scream. I remember what a life-changing impact that had, that had on me and others. But behind it all was prayer, but now in front of it all is prayer. Mm -hmm. And I think that the movement is being supernaturalized, but not in some kind of glitzy, ostentatious way that calls attention to itself, mm -hmm. but precisely the opposite. I mean, we're reaching Nineveh proportions, and so, you know, the kind of fasting and prayer that you are calling for just seems to kind of fit. Yeah. It does. And it too, one of the things that always was encouraging to me is how it's not just about one organization or one effort, it really has helped to catalyze a lot of other new efforts, sparking new organizations and efforts, as well as help to bolster those things like our wonderful pregnancy help centers that yeah. we have in communities all across the country, that they need somebody helping to direct those who are abortion vulnerable to find them. Yeah. And what's the best place to do that? Well, but And, and also, I mean, the place of prayer is something that can appeal to everybody. It's a universal human vocation. Right. I'm, I'm struck by a comment that John Cardinal Daniel Liu made, that destitution is the condition of man left to himself, deprived mm. of the energies of God. And prayer is how we plug in to that reservoir. And if you don't pray, uh, you're literally gasping for, for breath. Right. You have no oxygen. So the fact that you would use prayer, uh, weaponize even <laughs> prayer, I, I think is, is marvelous. Well, and it's really made the pro-life movement one of the most ecumenical movements in the United sure. States. And maybe you can share a little bit about that, particularly just with your own conversion. <laughs> I mean, when you look at Christians coming together, people of prayer, people who just believe in God, mm -hmm. uh, you go to the March for Life and they're all there. Right. You know, they're all very, very present there. I mean, what, what could be more unifying than life Absolutely. and the appeal to the author of life? And that has been, for me, having been raised in the Presbyterian Church, in college getting involved in evangelical ministries, and then ending up dating and marrying a Catholic Christian, and then now coming into full communion with the church this past Easter vigil myself, it's been one of the greatest blessings of the movement is seeing people who may not see eye to eye on theology, but can stand arm in arm, united in their commitment to speak up for those who can't speak for themselves. Oh it's a great blessing. And yet, I will say the Catholic Church has led the way over these many That's decades right. since abortion was decriminalized here in the United States. And that has been a way that really has invited many people, myself included, to discover the church and its full teachings and beauty, and ultimately oh, to come to the church. Oh, praise God. Well, we have so much more to talk about, so stay with us for more Franciscan University Presents. As president of Students for Life Values Outreach here at Franciscan, I've really gotten to see firsthand how important it is to be at, you know, at ground zero in front of the abortion clinics, you know, praying and doing ministry. 
but I also know how important it is to reach people before they're in situations where they're thinking about having an abortion. And the best way to do that is to go to young people and to kind of just take that message of the culture of life and give it to them early so that way they don't have to become, you know, part of these awful situations that we see at the abortion clinic. At Franciscan University of Steubenville, you'll find faith and reason, wisdom and grace, mercy and truth. You'll study under world-class scholars and seasoned practitioners who are committed to Christ and His church. With over 40 majors and pre-professional programs, you'll find the formation you need to succeed. At Franciscan University, you'll find more than just a college. You'll find yourself and an educational experience as singular as you are. Welcome back to Franciscan University Presents. We've been talking about pro-life activism today with our guest, David B. Wright, founder of 40 Days for Life. And David, maybe we could take uh, a little bit of time in this segment to talk about the politics sure. of abortion, you know, because it, it really is one of the key political issues that we see that often is very divisive within the United States, almost defining our different political parties here in the U.S. Um, how, as a movement of prayer and fasting, uh, does 40 Days for Life impact or uh, can impact the political spectrum where so many major decisions about what is alive, constitutional rights and other things are decided? Mm -hmm. I, I think first it's important that we recognize that fundamentally we as Catholic Christians have a fundamental oblig obligation to be engaged in civic responsibilities. So yes, we have to vote. Yes, we have to know what's going on. We have to be involved to where we can. And it's not this you know, separation of church and state myth that has been propagated for so long. So as pro-life Christians, pro-life Catholics, we have to realize prayer is our most potent weapon. It's the most powerful thing we can do because God is the one who's ultimately going to change hearts, change the culture. But then we have to put our faith into action in other ways. So it's very important that we understand that Roe v. Wade, the imposition of abortion through the Supreme Court is actually what created abortion on demand through all 50 states. So we need to be aware of what led to it. We need to be aware of what federal legislation, what state legislation, how it impacts us as pro-life advocates and also impacts the issue of abortion. And then we need to do what we can to change that which can be changed. Hmm. So we pray, but then we also act. And a lot of that is making sure that we, every time we have the chance, go to the polls and vote pro-life. That should be fundamental to who and what we are. But then to get to know the issues, what are the pieces of legislation that are on the agenda in my state? What are the things going on in the House of Representatives, the U.S. Senate, and how can I educate myself on those things and then also be engaged with my elected officials to let them know how I feel? And then even in the midst of changes on the Supreme Court happening this very year and seeing the shift there, realizing that there can be opportunities now for cases to come before the court which would, could challenge and possibly re-decide the tenets that led to Roe versus Wade, a very unjust decision that opened this Pandora's box. So there's a lot of importance that we're talking about here, but for everybody to realize the climate change that's happening right now, if anything, calls us as Christians to be more engaged and particularly right where we live. So best case scenario, yep. you know, we have the Supreme Court hear a case and then reverse Roe v. Wade. I honestly think that a lot of Catholics, a lot of Christians, a lot of Americans are going to be surprised that when 
if and when Roe v. Wade is reversed, it isn't going to be the same thing as Henry Hyde's constitutional amendment to, you know, it's just gonna throw it back to the states. That's correct. And, and I think it's important to recognize that it's going to be debated in the states in such a way that we ought to be ready for local political action and involvement. I know my wife is a city councilwoman at large here in the city of Steubenville, but I, I think in terms of county and state, are there states, they don't have to name names, but you know, are, are there, is there any progress in states with regard to this kind of political and spiritual action? Scott, you hit the, the nail on the head because that truly is where we need to be more engaged right. now more than ever. So Roe v. Wade's overturned, it goes back to the states. In most states, abortion would continue the next day the exact same way it would the day before Roe was right. overturned. So there are states that are making progress. So in the frustration that many Americans share, m many Catholics share of why has our Congress not defunded Planned Parenthood? Why have we not made more progress when we have supposed majorities in the House and Senate and supposedly a pro-life administration in the White House? The reality is that there are limitations to what can be done with the numbers of people that are there. So more people have taken the initiative at the state level. In the last three years, more pro-life laws have been passed at the state level yeah. than in the previous 30 years combined. Here, here. So there is a lot of progress being made. So when I first got involved in the movement, there was one state that was down to only one remaining abortion center. Today there are eight states in that situation and some of those states could very feasibly become the first abortion-free state or one of the first and could be a domino that starts a chain reaction across the country. So I think the important lesson to the viewers and to all of us is this is the moment for us to really put our faith into action to get engaged in this movement and particularly where it happens in our communities, in the cities where we live and in the states where we live because that's where we're going to have to be organized, coordinated, strategic, making measurable progress, and that's where we're going to see cultural change beyond top-down, yeah. which comes from the Supreme Court. The, yeah. You know, the great it's myth great. Of, of privacy, I, I think I'm so glad to see you disabusing it, because uh, uh, it's not about what you do uh, in the womb, uh, and it's only your business and not the business of, of, of the state or the society. I mean, politics is about the business of securing the common good to preserve it, defend it. And life is, is necessary to the maintenance of, of the common good. So in terms of, in terms of a general proposition, it, it does seem to me both unreal and dangerous to separate prayer and politics. They belong together. And as Tip O'Neill reminded us, uh, mm -hmm. all politics is local. It begins in the village. Right. It begins with, with parents uh, and, and the city council, uh, as your wife uh, uh, so eloquently uh, testifies. Uh, so we can't have a neutral politics. Absolutely. And, and the, the ultimate reason for that is the incarnation. Once Christ entered time, a neutral politics became impossible. The, the stage of, of human history is occupied by, by Christ. He's there. We can't get rid of him. And he's supremely interested in, in life. What do we do about life? We're going to have to answer uh, for that on the other side. Absolutely. I think what you're giving all of us is hope, but a new hope and a new key. Uh, because, you know, I think what's going to happen if and when Roe v. Wade is reversed, there's going to be a volcanic eruption. And, and we're gonna hear that, you know, the sky is falling, women are going to be sold into slavery and everything else, you know. We'll get through that, you know. But I don't think we're really quite ready yet to be on the other side of that. 
Because I think the temptation for people like me is either to give up in mm -hmm. despair or to react in anger. Mm -hmm. I mean, some things are worthier than others of anger, sure. but you know, anger is so often counterproductive unless it's really harnessed and channeled in holy ways. And too often and too easily, it's not. Mm -hmm. And so I do think that this is a prescription of health for people to not only do something constructive, but to do something that is close to home. And in the process, find out how many good neighbors are out there who you know, need to be educated, who need to be kind of coordinated and motivated to get involved in this sort of thing. You know, it, it seems to me that there's a twofold strategy that needs to uh, uh, unfold. To the Catholic politician, we need to say, look, what you're doing is wrong. You can't privately oppose abortion and then publicly uh, approve. That's dishonest, that's humbuggery. And so we convict him. Righteous indignation, <laughs> I, I think, is healthy when it comes to the politician. But the woman who is oftentimes the victim of this, who reaches desperately for that solution, for her we need compassion, love, and the willingness to help her, to shepherd her through this crisis and to demonstrate that, you know, this is good news. You have a child. This is evidence that life should go on. God is happy uh, with this. Mm -hmm. Let's protect you. Let's uh, try and ensure not just a safe birth, but uh, a healthy formation for this child. Mm -hmm. That's responsible politics. It is. Well, and it's talking about creating a culture, you know, a culture where... Of life. Within yeah. a, a culture of life, a culture where within our churches, a single mother wouldn't be looked at with judgment. Right. So yeah. she feels ostracized. Mm -hmm. yeah. a, a culture where adoption uh, is encouraged and seen really as a, as a beautiful opportunity, yeah. as, as, yeah. A, as a great gift. Yeah, we, David, we stigmatize the pro-life, I mean, the, the pro-choice politician, but right. not the woman right. who's caught in this trap. But know. in the media, it's really free. hard to see yeah. that separation. And so, David, maybe you could just talk a little bit about ways in which 40 Days for Life is just uh, impacting that culture, because what I hear in terms of the work of 40 Days for Life. You mentioned earlier the hearts and minds. Right. You know, it's not just about overturning Roe v. Wade. If, right. if that happened, it, you know, places where abortion was legal before would still be abortion. It's about changing our perception, uh, changing the way we approach it, those who are in these situation, abortion vulnerable. Just maybe you could just share a little bit about yeah. that. And, and even before I go there, if I could, yeah. one warning, a caution is that when we talk about political, we talk about overturning Roe versus Wade, there's a danger that we humanly want to look for a silver bullet. Right. And we keep thinking, if this one thing happens, if I have a pro-life president, a pro-life majority in the U.S. House and Senate, I can sit back, I don't have to do my part. If Roe v. Wade is overturned, we get a new Supreme Court justice, I can sit back and not do my part. Or if some group is representing my interests in Washington, D.C. or in my state capitol, I can sit back. That is, I believe, the devil trying to keep us from doing that which we're called to do. Mm. because. Political engagement, civic engagement, is a part of a much bigger puzzle. And we, as people of faith, have to realize that prayer is fundamental, compassionate action is fundamental, making our voices heard in righteous indignation at times or in compassion at times needs to happen. We need to bring healing to those who've been wounded, the post-abortive women and men. We need to be involved in so many different ways, and the political, the legislative are a part of that. So we have to always remember that we're called to speak up for those who can't speak of themselves. We're not called to elect people who will do that for us and just sit back and, and go from there. 
So to answer the question about you know, 40 days and other efforts, and there are many wonderful pro-life efforts that are involved now engaging people of faith and conscience in, in doing things to respond to this, I think the key is that recognition that there are many different ways that people can make a difference. I had people come up to me many times when I would be out speaking at events, and they would say to me, I'm not sure I'm called to do what you do, to go out and pray in front of abortion centers. And I would say, that's fine. Not everybody's called to do the exact same right. thing. Yeah. But find your place. Right. Find what you can do. And then invest your efforts. Maybe it's to be on city council, like Kimberly. Maybe it's to be a professor who's teaching about the fundamental dignity of human life. But all of us have some role. And that's what we have to do is look in the mirror and ask God to show us, what can I do? How can I make a difference? And how can I make sure my pro-life convictions carry out into every area of my life and all of my responsibilities as a Catholic, as a citizen? How can I make that impact that God is calling me to make? Right. Yeah, that's fantastic. And yeah, I really... You know, the witness of your life is probably going to be the only Bible your neighbor <laughs> uh, reads. Yeah. Uh, and it needs to shine. Yeah. with the radiance of God. Mm -hmm. As Pope Paul VI said, modern man listens more willingly to witnesses than to right. teachers, and right. to teachers only if they are witnesses. David, let's talk a little bit about some of those other ways that people can be a part of this movement. Mm -hmm. um, you know, one is, uh, and maybe even just for our viewers who might not be that familiar with, can you just share a little bit about the ministry that's done on the sidewalks, the, mm -hmm. the prayer vigils, uh, what's that, what that's like, what are the obstacles there uh, in, in terms of, you know, really the heart of what 40 Days for Life does? Sure. So 40 Days recognized that we have to go and save lives where they're at the greatest risk, which is walking into an abortion facility. And will you save every life there? Absolutely not, regrettably. But you can pray and ask God to open the doors of opportunity to reach some. So the important thing is that those who are called to be a part of sidewalk efforts, when they go there, it's important, I believe, to pray before you go, pray while you're there, and pray after you're there. Because ultimately, the hearts and minds that can be reached, it's going to be God that's going to do it. And hopefully, He'll give us the right words to use if and when we have a moment of, of encounter with a woman who's going in or someone else who's affected by this. When we go there, we need to have a heart and mind for those people walking in we, we are not condemning them, we are trying to love them. If you cannot speak to the needs of that mother who's right. in a crisis yeah. situation, yeah. you won't be able to reach the baby. The baby can't do anything in the womb on his or her own. So we have to speak to the needs of the mother and try to help. The most powerful words that we can share, if we have that moment to share with somebody who's in an unexpected pregnancy, whether it's in front of an abortion center, whether it's in the pew in our church, or whether it's in a school of our children's, I will help you. There was a study, Students for Life, released a few years ago where they found 78% of women who had had abortions said if one person in their life had said, I will help you through this, they would not have had the abortion. Wow. We have an obligation to be that person to help them. Yeah. So compassionate, loving, reach the mother. Also, I would say, and this was something that completely surprised us, compassionate to those who work in the abortion industry. Yeah. Not yelling at them and screaming at them, you baby killer, as we may feel that righteous indignation and want to right. do that, right. but realizing they are children of God, made in His image and likeness, just like us, just like the child in the womb. And many of the workers, like Abby Johnson and hundreds of others who have now left the abortion industry, were won by love. Yes. They were won by love, and that's how we can help to change hearts and minds. So compassion, prayerful, reaching everybody who's affected, and going to that place even when it's uncomfortable for us because God tells us that we can make a difference when two or more gather in His name. Yeah. Praise God. And we're going to talk more about this uh, when we come back uh, to Franciscan University Presents. So please stay tuned.
Me and a number of other students are um, taking part in a new program called Core Values Outreach. And so what we've been doing is going to malls and other college campuses and engaging in conversations with other people about um, getting to the root of what the dignity of the human person is. So one of the ways that we're actually developing our Students for Life Club and this program of life is called the Predicare Fellowship, which in Latin, Predicare means to preach. And so basically what it is, is a student, doesn't matter where they're located, it could be on any campus, um, they'll be given a mentor and they'll be put in touch with other students who are also looking to be leaders in the church and this culture of life. You don't have to trade top flight academic programs for a passionately Catholic identity. You can have both. At Franciscan University of Steubenville, you'll not only deepen your faith, you'll be prepared for real world success by dedicated professors for whom excellence isn't just a goal, but the standard. Ready to get started? Check out franciscan.edu. Welcome back and thank you for joining us. You're watching Franciscan University Presents. We are coming to you from the Communication Arts Studio here on the campus of Franciscan University of Steubenville. Our students are operating the cameras and equipment and I'm joined by my colleagues in the theology department, Dr. Regis Martin and Dr. Scott Hahn. Our continuing discussion with David B. Wright as we discuss pro-life activism today and you know, as professors at Franciscan, a lot of our work that we do here is with young adults. Yes. Certainly, uh, Franciscan University has a very dynamic outreach to over 50,000 young people every summer through our youth conferences. I know you've been a chaperone at those events and a part of it. Maybe we can talk more about what you see occurring in the younger generation, mm. millennials or Generation Z. I mean, obviously, these are the men and women who are making the life or death decisions uh, in, in regards of abortion and certainly are going to be moving the needle in terms of American understanding and support, both politically, you know, nationally and locally. How are they responding to the message of 40 Days for Life? Well, they're responding to the message of life in record numbers, and that's incredibly encouraging. If you look at polling data, you find that under 30 young people are the most pro-life since Roe versus Wade was imposed upon America, mm. and that gives a lot of hope. So that's the reason I've loved, I've served on the board of Students for Life of America. I'm doing a project with Focus, Fellowship of Catholic University Students. I love working with young adults because to me, they're not the future of the pro-life movement. They're not the future of the church. They are the now. Mm. They're the ones who are shaping what our culture will look like for decades, perhaps generations to come. So I have great hope about their pro-life convictions. I have great hope about their pro-life involvement. I, in traveling around the country, have met with many young leaders, sometimes high school students and college students who are themselves leading the pro-life efforts in their communities, be it a local 40 Days for Life campaign or a campus student group, or they're involved in legislative and educational efforts, or they run the local pregnancy center, or they volunteer there. And that gives me a lot of hope because they are able to connect to their peers who are in the crosshairs of the abortion industry. Yeah. Planned Parenthood looks at that demographic as their customer base. That's where they make most of their money mm -hmm. in the abortion industry. And so peer to peers where they can have the greatest influence and where they're able to change hearts and minds and offer those words, I can help you most effectively. Yeah. If somebody like me, who has some gray hairs on my head, says that to a young woman, she may say, okay, maybe you can help me, but you can't possibly understand what I'm going through. If one of her peers sitting next to her on yeah. campus says to her, I can help you, and I know the resources in the community to help you, that's where they can make the profound life-changing difference. So I'm greatly encouraged, but there is one cautionary note that I always have to look at. 
And it happened when I was about to speak at a major pro-life youth conference. And the organizer of the conference leaned over to me and she said, these are some of the most dynamic pro-life leaders on high school and college campuses across the country. Isn't it a shame that so many of them support same-sex marriage? Hmm. And I realized we have some gaps of understanding. Right. Yep. And that's why it's important for us as Catholics to help form people in the fullness of truth to understand our human anthropology and who we are in relationship with God, who we are in relationship to others, and realize that until we understand God's view of sexuality and help to live that out ourselves within the sacrament of matrimony and, and help others to understand the gift of chastity, we still are going to always have these problems. So there's hope, but there's also still opportunities yeah. for improvement. I am so glad. I'm glad you said that, David, because, you know, I look back and it was our pro-life act activism, Kimberly and me, as Protestants, as stalwart evangelicals, you know, anything but Catholic, but alongside of Catholics, because back in the 80s, it was the first time we saw this partnership, this alliance forged with evangelical Protestants and Catholics. Uh, but it was also in the context of praying together with them, mm -hmm. except when they were praying the rosary. You know? <laughs> but even that opened our hearts long term. But in the short term, conversations with them, uh, with not just the priests, particularly lay people, uh, would just share with me and even more with Kimberly. So that when she was a graduate student, she opened up and read Humane Vitae and was like, there is a nexus, yes. there is a link. You can't just quickly argue somebody into submission by saying, look, abortion will lead you to recognize that contraception is unnatural. But it's the prayer, it's the friendship, it's bearing witness to the, the dignity of each and every human person, this gift of human life. You trace it back to the source and you recognize that it is about marriage. It, it really is about family. Right. It's about male and female becoming one and allowing that oneness to become embodied yeah. in a child. Yeah, it, it seems to me that uh, the dialogue, which is, I think, what you're proposing with young people, because they are the cutting edge. I mean, they're the ones who are having children or choosing not to have children. Right. So that's the target audience. And in this conversation, uh, we need to remind them not only that life is sacred, it's precious, that they are, each of them, of imperishable value, the dignity of the human person, you know, children of God, and they must not be uh, exploited, abused, uh, or objectified. So abortion is bad, because that really is the most brutal objectification of another person. But also inclusive uh, is this recognition that men and women are different. <laughs> and because of that difference, we have reason to rejoice that complementarity is what allows for marriage, Absolutely. family, culture, Absolutely. life. And so same-sex marriage uh, is really sort of a uh, uh, an oxymoron, and they need to be somehow persuaded of that, but I think precisely through the conversation about life. I, I, I don't know any human beings. I know men, I know women, and I'm glad they're different. Mm -hmm. A friend of mine who works a lot with young people uh, summarized it like this. Uh, the morality of young people is often, is it nice or isn't it? And so they would say, it's not nice to kill a baby. And they would also say, it's not nice to let two people who love each other, regardless of their gender, right. not be able to get married. Right. And so really, David, what you're touching on is this idea that issues such as abortion are more of a symptom than really at the, at the Absolutely. heart of it. Absolutely. And so how, what can we do? I think many of our viewers uh, might have 
younger children or certainly know people of a younger generation or are part of that younger generation. How might we better convey that message to this generation? Well, I, I think it's important to realize a lot of times we look for tactics and instead we need to focus on principles. How do we change somebody's mind? We're looking for the right sentence to say or the right thing to do. Uh, tactics are many, principles are few. Tactics always change, yeah. principles never do. That's mm -hmm. one of the mottos I live by. Mm -hmm. And I think the understanding that we have to realize is many of the young people who may oppose abortion for a human rights reason, but may also oppose or support other things that we know are immoral, they are coming from themselves a broken culture, and many times they're coming from broken families. Yeah. I was struck to the core when, Scott, you shared at a talk you gave, and then you used it in the introduction of your book, The First Society, when the professor got up in front of you and said, if Catholics would live out the sacrament of matrimony for one generation, it would change the culture. I forget the exact wording, and it would essentially fix many of the problems that we have. I believe that from the bottom of my heart, because until we work on getting the family right, that is the domestic church that forms our young people. So how does that apply to, to viewers of the show? How does that apply to us? Number one, we need to love God more than ever and, and strive to grow in holiness and virtue. Number two is we need to love our spouses in a sacramental way and understand what that sacrament entails. Number three, we need to love and form our children and then we need to together engage those around us, including the youth who are our children's peers. You know, in, in the world of, of high classical antiquity, the thing that really astonished the pagans was the fact that, that Christians actually loved one another and they loved even pagans. Hmm. And so when hard times fell upon those pagan peoples, the Christians were there to welcome them as, mm -hmm. as children of God, as neighbors. That's what built a Christendom, this recognition at the root level that we all belong to one another. We're brothers and sisters under the skin because there's a common paternity, right. the Father uh, in heaven. Mm -hmm. You know, the, uh, the second founding of Franciscan is how I like to refer to what <laughs> Father Michael Scanlon did. And for him and now all of us, John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Mm. You know, and no one comes to the Father but by me. But what he would always instill in us is that the only way to life is through the truth. Mm. And Christ is the truth. Uh, and he doesn't just teach the truth, he embodies that in his love. So the way to life is through the truth about marriage and sexuality. But I think it's so much easier to teach it, at least it is for me, than to go home and live it. Mm. It's so much easier for me to hold a grudge against my wife <laughs> or to refuse to apologize or to weapon my weaponize my apology. I'm sorry you misunderstood me again, again you know. <laughs> and and I, I think the more we really cash this out at home with our spouse, with our kids watching, and mm -hmm. eating a bigger slice of humble pie than we're used to or we want to. I, I really believe that's where the transformation begins. And again, it begins the next morning and right. tomorrow night, you know, and all of that. It's so comforting to know that we have the same struggles. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> it, it confirms yet again that wonderful dictum uh, from T.S. Eliot that the only wisdom we can hope to acquire is the wisdom of humility. Mm. And humility is endless. Mm. And it begins with the acknowledgement, I'm a creature, I'm given by God. I didn't give myself, I received that self. Mm. And so too uh, did you, uh, and so we're together. Uh, there's a coherence, a solidarity. Let's protect one another. Mm. And you know, I, I, that humility is one of the things I love. You know, we mentioned it earlier, this, this uh, simple approach, you know, not, uh, not an aggressive, not a condemning, but a loving, praying, 
fasting. And you've gotten to see this ministry not only boom throughout the United States, but mm. throughout the world. I actually yes. had an opportunity when I was in Birmingham, England. Uh, there was a 40 <laughs> Days for Life prayer vigil that I've been I got there. to join. It was <laughs> yeah. freezing in the freezing that cold. So amazing. I mean, it really is beautiful. Just from a maybe a global perspective. You've come a long the, way from That's right, oh my exactly, <laughs> praise Jesus Christ. Um, some of the opportunities or maybe some of the obstacles that you just see uh, in regards of helping people have a more open heart to the understanding of the beauty of life. Mm. Well, going back to, we, we talked about hope and I think one of the things that I have seen in the growth of 40 Days and other pro-life efforts around the world is I see a lot of hope mm. to realize that when we are quietly praying outside an abortion facility in our town and think, I'm the only one crazy enough to do this, there are people in hundreds of other cities mm. praying at that exact same moment and they're lifting one another up uh, together. So that's that's great hope. The, the other thing I've seen from international travels, I can just touch on that aspect for a moment, is the realization that we here in America have a massive mantle of responsibility on our shoulders. I have had religious leaders, I have had journalists tell me that in other countries, and every country I've been to doing pro-life work, which is dozens, they have come up to me on their own and said, we look to the United States for leadership, we look to the pro-life movement in the United States for our hope. And so my message to American Christians, Catholics, pro-lifers is, what we do here, yes, it's about saving lives in front of us. Yes, it's about bringing an end to this injustice in our society, in our nation. But ultimately, this is providing hope to the rest of the world. So we have a large mantle of responsibility on our shoulders. So my encouragement to everyone is to realize that you can make a difference. And that fundamentally is, is where it begins. It begins with me and God and me asking him, where do you want to use me? How can I be your hands and feet in the midst of this effort? Discerning my gifts, my talents, my strengths, my weaknesses, and figuring out where's the place where I can make the greatest difference. Maybe it's on the sidewalk. Maybe it's at a pregnancy center. Maybe it's as a teacher. Maybe it's as a legislator. Wherever it is, but as he reveals it to each of us saying, yes, as for me and my house, we will serve you, Lord, and I will be faithful to do what you ask me to do. And as Mother Teresa said during her life, St. Teresa of Calcutta, we're not called to be successful, we're called to be faithful. Changing the culture is a massive undertaking. It's going to take generations. We will not see all the fruits of the efforts that you're investing at Franciscan University into the lives of these students and into the people reached by this ministry all around the world. But the real fruit of that will be generations down the road and will be discovered once we arrive in heaven. And for each of us to involve ourselves in pro-life efforts faithfully, but realizing that the success is God's in His timing. It sounds like the only thing you shouldn't do is nothing. Absolutely. Yeah, amen. <laughs> I think nothing, it's a great way to nothing consolidate. Nothing is not an option. That's right. Absolutely. Well, stay with us as our panel and guests will have their final thoughts on pro-life activism today, coming up next. When it comes to preaching the truth of the pro-life message, the youth are an incredibly important audience because they're so open and receptive to the truth. My job as Director of Media for Students for Life is to create various mediums, such as magazines and YouTube videos, that Life Values Outreach missionaries can pull from when they're preaching to the youth. If you're a school or a parish or a youth group that's interested in bringing the message of the culture of life to your kids, uh, we really encourage you to reach out to us because we send our speakers their college age and they come free of cost and we're willing to go all across the nation. So if you're interested, just reach out to us and we'll be happy to send someone your way. Explore the treasures of your Catholic heritage on a Franciscan University pilgrimage. Led by inspiring spiritual directors, you'll walk in the footsteps of saints and martyrs in the Holy Land, Poland, France, and Italy 
and you'll deepen your love for Jesus Christ through daily mass, confession, prayer, and the joy of Christian fellowship. Let Franciscan University lead you on a pilgrimage of faith. Find out more at franciscan.edu slash pilgrimages. Welcome back to Franciscan University Presents. We've come to our final segment. Regis, would you start us off with your thoughts on this topic? Yeah, I was uh, really struck by a comment you made, a sort of sidebar, that for lots of young people, the defining uh, criterion for the moral life is, is it nice? Does it make me feel good? Is it pleasant? Is it agreeable? You know, C.S. Lewis pounced on, on that particular pathology and, and, and called it a senile benevolence and used the example of the rich old uncle who really doesn't give a damn about his nephew or his niece and so throws money at them so that they'll keep their distance. He doesn't want to get involved uh, in the messy details of the human condition. Uh, his, his love is really indifference, masquerading as a kind of niceness. I mean, love is a lord of terrible aspect. I mean, that's how Dante describes it uh, in the culminating canto of, of the Divine Comedy. It's love that moves the heavens and the stars and the sun and planet Earth. And, and Dostoevsky speaks of love as a harsh and dreadful thing, as opposed to the soft soap and sentimentality of a play-acting love. And, and so love aims to promote the very best uh, in the beloved, and that requires sometimes saying no to their pleasure, no to their appetites. And I think finally, uh, Paul is really spot on when he tells us we're not fighting against flesh and blood, we're contending against powers and principalities. And he describes the world as this present darkness. So I think pessimism is, is in order, but finally vanquished by supernatural hope. And you are a vehicle of that hope, and I'm, I'm so grateful that uh, you're here uh, on the scene. Thank you. Amen. Scott. Uh, picking up on what Regis just shared, I would say, you know, what our Lord says in the Gospel of John, chapter 8, you know, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. Mm -hmm. And nothing but the truth will set you free. And so it's that combination of truth and freedom, you know, both stand or fall together. And everybody who wants to be nice wants niceness to be equated to with total freedom. But there is no freedom apart from truth. Mm -hmm. And so the truth of life, the truth of love, the truth of covenant, marriage, family, these things are the sine qua non. Without them, we won't have true freedom. Uh, without them, we will end up backing ourselves into a degrading slavery. Th there's a cause for alarm, but even more, there's a cause for prayer, as you have been helping to teach us all. Uh, I'm reminded throughout the show of the talk that you gave about five years ago <laughs> at the AIM banquet across the river in Weirton, West Virginia. I went with my son, and I didn't tell him, I hadn't even told myself that I had given up. <laughs> I, was, I was hopeless for the pro-life movement. And your talk then, and this show today, you know, it didn't make me an optimist. You know, pessimism is, I think, a rational response to the circumstance in a strictly natural world, but we live in a supernaturalized world. So there is no basis whatsoever for pessimism. Uh, apart from Christ, we can do nothing, but let's not ever be apart from Christ. 
for with Christ, you know, he can do all things. We can do all things through him who strengthens us. And so just like you did that night, you restored hope. You gave us statistics, you gave us anecdotes, you gave us you gave us proof positive that God is at work, especially behind the scenes, and not just at the clinics, but even in the state houses, with lobbyists, with educators, you know, and this sort of thing. And and so the single, I mean, I, I'm fighting tears again, just like I was that night, because I, I, I had given up hope. My son had, we finally admitted it out in the parking lot, and we, we said a prayer for you. And I got in touch with you within a matter of hours. I sent you a text message. And, and uh, you, you, you responded. And I really do believe that Our Lady has a plan for you, for Margaret, for all of this work. And so uh, keep reigniting that, that hope within us. You know, they say you can live three days without water, you know, three minutes without air, but not three seconds without hope. Mm-hmm. And let's not even try. Amen. But thanks Amen. very much. Amen. Thank you. David. A motto I've tried to live my life by is a little bit different than the Nike motto of just do it. My motto has been do it anyway. And the reason for that is because I have fought God every step of the way in this pro-life journey, coming into the church and all of these different things, but I've done the things anyway that needed to be done. When my wife dragged me to a meeting that was being held right after Planned Parenthood announced they were building the abortion clinic in our town, I didn't want to go, but I went anyway. There were people volunteering to do things. I didn't want to get involved, but I knew I had an obligation, I got involved anyway. As I eventually took the helm of that local organization, I was scared, I didn't know how to run an organization, did it anyway. When God revealed in that hour of prayer around a wooden table this plan for this crazy 40 days for life thing, I, I was terrified and then think we could pull it off, but we did it anyway. And as a result of that, taking that step of faith, many times in sheer terror, many times with doubt, many times with despair, but doing the things that we know we're called to do anyway, that's where God's able to work, and that's ultimately where He gets the credit and the glory. You know, you refer to me as a founder of 40 Days for Life. Really, the Holy Spirit is the founder of 40 Days for Life because He's the one that breathed life into it as a project and as a movement. My message to everyone is, God has some plan for every one of us in this work for such a time as this. Every role is different, every person is different, a unique creation of God, but each of us have something He wants us to do to be a voice for the voiceless, to rescue those being led to the slaughter, and we're scared, we see our inadequacies, we look at the problems in the world, we look at divisions, we look at the political challenge, we just look at all of this and we just wanna throw up our hands, we wanna give up. But each of us have something we can do, and we need to just do it anyway. And so my final, my message, my encouragement is for each of us to fight those internal struggles as best we can, but put our faith in God, because with Him, all things are possible. And then when He reveals what He wants us to do, Fight those fears, overcome them, and do it anyway. And through that, God will be revealed to the world. He will save lives. He will change hearts and minds, and He will restore our culture. Amen. Thank you, David. Thank you so much for being here. And if you want to learn further what you can do to help the pro-life cause, we have this free handout for you, Pro-Life Activism Today, written by our guest, David B. Wright. This is yours for free by simply going to faithandreason.com or by calling the number you'll see on the screen in just a moment. Uh, my final thoughts on today's topic. I have, uh, I'm, I'm reminded of a, a good friend of mine who has a very devout uh, fa- Catholic family, and uh, his teenage daughter came to him saying the words that most dads are afraid of hearing, Dad, I'm pregnant. Mm-hmm. His response, I thought, was brilliant. He said, honey, this is great news with horrible timing. 
He was able in that moment to realize what was wrong about the situation, but more importantly, acknowledge what was right about the situation. This was a life, this was sacred, and this was beautiful. I'm really grateful just myself, you know, in the 90s I was here as a master's student at Franciscan University, and it was a culture of life that I hadn't been, uh, you know, e exposed to. I, um, you know, seeing big families, uh, you know, seeing them interact with each other, I don't think I knew anybody more than two kid families growing up outside of Chicago. And just being formed in that, praying in that, uh, getting married here. I now have seven kids, uh, one of whom is adopted. Just that beautiful gift of life and love, that really is uh, the message that we need to go forth and share with the world, especially I think with young people, just to see that model of family, of love, of, of life. Uh, that is what's going to change, I think, the hearts and minds of everybody. Wouldn't it be amazing? Even if uh, you know, years later, decades later, uh, abortion was still legal in the United States, but nobody wanted to do it yeah. because everybody realized that uh, life is sacred, life is beautiful, and that's the gift that can only happen through prayer and fasting. Some demons are only driven out that way. And no matter how we get involved in this cause, uh, that is something that all of us can do. So if you're watching, I just invite you, as we're going to close in prayer in a moment, but just in your life, pray. Pray for the dignity for the unborn. Pray for the healing of those young women, those uh, abortion-sensitive, uh, abortion, abortion-vulnerable women who are making those decisions. Pray for those that are working in those clinics uh, for a conversion of their hearts. Uh, let us pray and let us fast and let us be hopeful uh, to a God who has overcome sin and death and certainly can overcome this. Why don't we just bring all this to our Blessed Mother and ask for her intercession as together we pray. Hail Mary, full, full of grace, grace. The, the Lord is, is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, women and, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother, Mother of God, God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our, our death. death. Amen. Amen. Thank you again, and thank you for watching. Please be a part of our mission here at Franciscan University of Steubenville. Uh, see more resources that are available on faithandreason.com, uh, and join us in our mission to educate, evangelize, and send forth disciples to restore all things in Christ. God bless. To download the free handout on today's topic, go to faithandreason.com. Email your request for the handout to presents at franciscan.edu. At faithandreason.com, you can also purchase past episodes of Franciscan University Presents or request today's free handout and purchase past programs by calling 888-333-0381. That's 888-333-0381. Or call 740-283-6357.